We are in week, this is our one, two, three, this is fourth week, right? This is the almost a month now in Psalm 22. We're going through the shadows of Golgotha, pictures of Golgotha in the Old Testament. And um, this week is week number four, four in Psalm 22. And I think next week we're going to try to finish up this psalm. Let's see who remembers. Um, in Psalm 22, we say that um, there is a, a description of three different pictures of Christ in that psalm. Verses 1 to 5 is a picture of Christ the forsaken one. Alright, so that's, uh, that's the point that Psalm 22, 1-5 describe how Christ was forsaken on our behalf on the cross. Then verses 6 to 21, that is a picture or uh, a highlight here of Christ the suffering one, right? The, the, the actual agony and the pains that Christ went through on the cross. And then from verse 21 all the way into the, to the end of the psalm, it is Christ the triumphant, the victorious one. Amen? So we started for like three, four weeks ago about Christ the forsaken one, and then we, went, we moved on to Christ the suffering one. Uh, we spoke last week and the week before about that. Today we're going to close that up, and then next week we're going to move to Christ the triumphant one. So as we have been doing, let's all stand and let's read that psalm together. Um, Let's all stand, and I want you to um, be meditating on the words of this psalm as we uh, read through it and um, meditate and think about the pain that actually Christ has gone through on the cross for us. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All of those who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusted in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delighted in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of patience encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouth wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart was turned to wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a butchered, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Yet you lay me in the dust of the earth. Dogs surround me. A pack of villain encircles me. They pierced my hand and my feet. All my bones are on display. Let's keep reading loud, guys. Amen. Verse 18. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, 
but he has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of the, my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vow. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nation. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generation will told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Amen. You all can be seated. So again, this psalm is uh, Jesus' personal cry and agony on the cross. And it gives us a very vivid picture of what Jesus has actually gone through when he was our substitute on the cross. Again, verses 6 to 21, uh, we discussed this for the last couple of weeks. We have seven different points that we try to use to look deeper into the pains that Jesus has gone through for us on the cross. We talked about, first of all, his condition, and we see that in verse 6 and in verse 14. In verse 6, we see that I am a worm and not a man. This is the overall condition of Christ on the cross. I am a worm and not even a man. And then in verse 14, I am poured out like water. He was so powerless and has no resistance to those who were just mocking, beating, shaming, and crucifying him. Then we moved on to his surroundings. He, the psalm described what was surrounding Christ on the cross. We see in verse 6 and 7 that he was mocked and despised by all those who are around him. Verses 12, 13, and 16, we see that the psalmist David, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, used animals to describe metaphorically the kind of people that surrounded Christ on the cross. So verse 12, 13, and 16, we see that he was surrounded by bulls, by a lions and by dogs. We talked about that as well. Then we moved on to his bones. And the scripture tells us in Psalm 22 and verse 14 that all his bones are out of joint. And we said that literally happened to Christ on the cross when they lifted the cross. Literally all his bones of the shoulders and the, uh, the limbs just got out of joint. And then in verse 17 it says, they count all my bones. Then the fourth description was about his heart. My heart was turned into wax. It melted within me. We talked about this and how because Jesus endured the judgment and the wrath and the fire of God on our behalf on the cross, his heart literally melted like wax. And then today, we're going to try to finish up the last three. We're going to talk a little bit about his mouth, how the Bible describes it in, in Psalm 22. And here it says, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth because he was, my, his mouth was so dry and he was so thirsty. Then we're going to talk about the description of his hands and his feet. We see that in verse 16 when it says, they pierced my hand and my feet. And finally, we're going to close by describing his clothes and how in verse 18 it says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots on my garments. Amen. So we're going to focus on the last three today and we're going to close up the, the Christ, the suffering one today. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Jesus' mouth. How he was actually very thirsty on the cross. If you remember what we said before is that um, Jesus said seven words on the cross. I think word five, um, I think four, five, and six are almost direct quotes from that song. One of Jesus' words on the cross was, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is Psalm 22 verse 1. And the very last verse of that psalm when it says, It is finished, it's almost equivalent to what Jesus said on the cross when he said, uh, well, it says, it has done it in Psalm 22. It's equivalent to what Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And in the middle of the psalm, we see this phrase that Jesus' mouth was so dry and that he was so thirsty. And Jesus, in between saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And saying, it is finished. The word that comes in between is, I am thirsty. And again, it seems like Jesus was just so mindful 
of that specific psalm on the cross because it just vividly described his pain and go in details of the actual suffering that Jesus endured on the cross. Amen? And in the middle, Jesus say, I am thirsty. And when Jesus described how thirsty he is, or even here in the psalm, when it says that his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth, this is not for me just a figure of speech. This is not just a metaphor that he was really thirsty. Amen? Because if you look at what Jesus has suffered on the cross, he was scourged, and we talked about this before, and he was bleeding from all the scourging, he was bleeding from all the beating, it was bleeding from the crown of thorns. So Jesus' blood was, has been bleeding for hours and hours and hours by the time he got to that point when he said, I'm thirsty. So the, the volume of fluid in his blood actually has been depleted so much, which caused him to be so thirsty and his mouth becomes so dry because he bleeds blood and he bleeds a lot of fluid. Remember when you go, if you ever donated blood, I haven't done it, but when you go donate blood, what do they tell you? Drink a lot of? Water. Why? Because when you donate blood, the volume, when it gets out of your body, you get so thirsty and the water tried to replace all of that. Now Jesus was not offered any water or any sort like that. He was just bleeding for hours and hours and hours and he's losing his, the volume of fluids in his body. And that's why when he got to the cross at the very end, almost, when he said, I'm thirsty, right after that he said, it is finished. And then he said, Father, in your hand I commit my life and then almost done. So that was when Jesus said, I'm, I'm thirsty. That was after the three hours of darkness. And he died very, very shortly right after that. So that was at the very end of all the torture that Christ has endured for us on the cross. Amen. So when he say my tongue stuck to the roof of my mouth, he's not talking just metaphorically about how thirsty he is. I believe that he was very, very, literally very thirsty on the cross. I found this article online written by an MD, a doctor, and it just talks about that. I, I'm just going to read it verbatim because it's just so powerful. It says this, hours of, of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint rendering cramps, intermediate partial acidification. He couldn't breathe when he was on the cross. Searing pain as issues is torn from his uh, lacerated back as he moves up and down, down against that rough temple. Remember Jesus was scored and every time he breathes, he's trying to lift him up, lift himself up. And then every time he exhales, he just put himself down. That's with a torn back. We talked about how he has been scourged and all the muscles was kind of flipped inside, outside. This is how bad they scourged him. So every time he breathed up and down, his, the wounds of his back just goes against that cross and cause an unbelievable amount of pain. A deep crushing pain. After all of this, now at the end of his life, a deep crushing pain in the chest as the precardium uh, slowly fills with serum and begins to compress his heart. The way Jesus died is this. When we, when we have the heart, the heart is covered by a layer, a muscle that's kind of like a protected called the precardium. So Jesus, because of all the suffering that he has gone through, fluid start getting in between the muscle of the heart and that precardium, that layer, that covering that covers the heart. And that fluid actually start pressuring the heart. And that's literally how Jesus died at the end. His heart was literally crushed. So in the book of Psalms when it says, the shame has broken my heart, that was not just a figure of speech because the heart of Christ on the cross was literally broken. The fluid crushed his heart, the fluid between the muscle and the precardium, the cover that covers that heart. It was actually pressuring and crushing his heart. So a deep crushing pain deep in the chest as, a, as the precardium slowly fills with the serum and begins to compress, to compress the heart. Let us remember again Psalm 22 verse 14. I am poured out like water and my bones are out of joy and my heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluid has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissue. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to grasp a small gulp of air. The, the markedly dehydrated tissue send their fluid send their send their flood of stimuli to the brain saying 
You need some water and that's what makes Jesus cry out say, I am thirsty. This was an excruciating amount of pain that Jesus was enduring on the cross and his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth because his mouth was so dry because of all the torture and all the flow that he has been losing over almost half a day at that point. Amen? My tongue stuck to the roof of my mouth. Now think about this. This is the same Jesus that just a couple of years later was, was, was talking to a Samaritan woman who went to draw water out of the well. And guess what Jesus told her in, in John 4, 4, 13 and 14. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never thirst right and look at this the water that I give will become in them a spring of water willing up to eternal life amen this is the exact same, same Jesus who said I am the one who can satisfy every single thirst that anyone in this world might have yet the exact same Jesus who can satisfy every thirst became so thirsty for you and me on the cross amen John 6 35 Jesus declared I am the bread of life whoever comes to me will never be hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty this is the exact same Jesus just a couple of years down the road on the cross bleeded his blood and every fluid that he has in his body so much so that he longed and wanted just some water because he was so thirsty John 7, 37-38 On the last and greatest day of festival, Jesus stood and said with a loud voice, Let anyone who thirsty come to me and drink whoever believes in me. As the scripture says, rivers of living water will flow out of him. Amen? It's the exact same Jesus who over and over and over again promised that he can satisfy every thirst, yet on the cross he thirsts for you and me. Amen? Remember, Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 15 about the rich man and Lazarus. And when the rich man who didn't know God died and he went to hell, what was one request that he asked from Father Abraham? He said, I am so... Thirsty. Just send Lazarus and just have him to dip his finger with some water. Just one drop of water. That's all what I need. Amen. This is the suffering that people will endure in hell. Yet Jesus endured the exact same suffering that sinners will take on because they have sinned against a holy and a righteous God. Jesus has endured that exact same suffering on the cross. Amen. Last week we talked about how he endured the fire of God, the wrath of God, because we sinned against him. Amen? And guess what's in hell? Fire, right? Jesus took it on the cross. What's in hell? Thirst? Jesus took it on the cross. What's in hell? Darkness? How many hours of darkness was there when Jesus was hanging on the cross? Three hours of darkness. I tell you, every single pain of hell that God will, Im will impose on people because they have sinned against him, God has already imposed on his son on the cross. So you and I can be set free and you and I can have life. Amen? I am thirsty, Jesus said. His mouth, his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth. Now let's move forward. How about his hands and his feet? Now I need your brains with me this time, okay? And if you didn't have any coffee this morning, <coughs> take these notes with you. And go get a good cup of coffee and read it again. This is complicated, amen? So what about his hands and his feet? His hands and his feet, we read in verse 16, They pierced my hand and my feet. Now there's a problem with that verse, is that some manuscripts in the Old Testament, actually some of the very good manuscripts, some of the very reliable manuscripts, doesn't read that verse and says, they pierced my hand and my feet. Some of the most reliable Hebrew manuscripts read, like a lion, my hand and my feet. Okay? And I... If you go actually online, there's tons of websites that kind of counter Christians in their efforts to try to evangelize the Jews. There's a bunch of them. One of them is Jews for 
Judaism, not Jews for Christ, Jews or Jews for Jesus, Jews for Judaism. So this website, for example, will tell you why Jesus is not the Messiah based on the Old Testament prophecies. And some of their arguments are pretty smart. I have to tell you that much. You need to know what you're talking about. I, I knew about it and um, I just never had the time to sit down and study which one is really the right reading. So uh, since we're going through Psalm 22, I figured we can go through it myself. And um, if you don't like it, too bad. Amen? Because I need to know this stuff for myself. Amen? You guys want to be equipped for the ministry, right? Here is the equipping. You need to learn this stuff so you can defend your faith. Alright, so there's two different readings in, in the Hebrew manuscripts. One reads, like a lion, my hand and my feet. And the other reading is, they pierced my hand and my feet. So we're going to look into these two readings. Um, the, the argument for it and why this people think it's the right one. And we're going to try to think through this together. Amen? If I lose you, let me know. And then um, I might just have you read it by yourself later on. So here's the problem. In Hebrew, actually, just to let you know, is opposite to English. Like in English, we write from left to right. Hebrews and Arabic, my mother tongue, goes from right to left. Amen? So I put the two words in, in the notes here for you. So if you see the two Hebrew words, like a lion and they pierced, if you look at it, they're almost identical to each other, except in the very last word, which is the first one if you read from left to right. Amen? You see that the last letter, if, if it's like a lion, it's just a tiny comma on top and then if it's the peers the comma on top is just a little bit longer so you can see that obviously one of these two reading is authentic and the other one is just a mistake from a scribe right you guys follow me that the first word like a, a line reads like this ka arai and that second word, they pierce my hand, reads like this, ka-aru. So it's like almost identical. Obviously one is very original, and the second one is just a mistake. The problem is, which one is the original? That's the problem. You guys follow me? Okay, so let's look at the first reading. Like a lion, my hand on my feet. This reading has a lot of support behind it. Number one, it is supported by the Masoretic text. Now this is, the Masoretic text is pretty much the best Hebrew text you can go for. If you want to know what the Hebrew says, you go to that Masoretic text. Amen? Um, they started actually, the Masoretic text uh, it started in the 6th century after Christ and ended the 10th century after Christ. So this is not pre-Christianity, this is post-Christianity. Actually, centuries after Christianity. Amen? But the Jews who sat down to, to collect that manuscript and write it down, all that they cared about is try to be as authentic as possibly they can be. Amen? And for the most part, even for us as Christian, this is a very good, reliable um, manuscript that we use all the time. Very, very reliable. So, and when that Mas Masoretic text go with that reading, that's a lot of weight behind that reading. Amen? So that's number one. Number two, so this is a little bit complicated, but the argument here is this. Even, like, it, it says that the Hebrew doesn't have the word pierced at all. This is the second argument. So, it goes like this. It, it says that even if the second reading is correct, okay, the word ka'ara'o is correct, and that last letter is actually as long, that he, some of the rabbis would argue and say, this word actually doesn't exist in the Hebrew language to start with. It is just gibberish. Okay? It, it doesn't even exist as a word. You guys follow me so far? And they say that the reason this word does not exist, the closest thing that will be close to it, if you actually flip your page with me, I should have done this word next to it. If you go with me to um, the very end, almost the very end of point number two, I have a, a word right here above deg, the very last word. Do you see that word right here? Everybody, so the very last line, line in point number two. You see that picture? It has three, three words in it. Now, this word is actually means to dig, like to dig a well or something like that. So they say the closest thing that the Hebrew reading they pierced can be linked to is this Hebrew word that say they dig. It doesn't mean they pierced flesh. It just means they dig a well. The only problem with that Hebrew word that we read is that if you go back to that picture, you're going to see there is a letter like an N, that N picture. After the first letter, the very second letter is an N. Do you see that? Oh, you follow me? You follow me? Everybody with me? 
Okay, so you see that the Hebrew word they pierced in the that the Christians try to defend sometimes has that in in it that is not actually in the root of the word they dig. So they say, you know what? You have that letter. Aleph, which is A in English, which is the second letter, that is not even like, that's in the word, that is not even in the original root, so it makes that word absolute gibberish. So the word, the pierced, as we think it says in the Old Testament, doesn't even exist in the language to start with. You guys follow me? With me? Explain that again? Or good? Okay? So the first argument is the word like a line is supported by the Masoretic text. The second argument is because of that letter Aleph, which is the second letter looks like in, they say that when you put that letter, it's kind of like makes the whole word gibberish, doesn't even exist, has no root in the Hebrew language. Amen? The third argument is every time the exact same word like a lion is translated in the Old Testament three times was mentioned the exact same word and each time was translated like a lion with no deviation so they say if the Masoretic text every single time they use that word is translated like a lion therefore Psalm 22 should also be translated like a lion you guys follow me so the argument number three is this every single time four times actually in the Masoretic text we see that exact same word like a lion Unanimously translate every single time as like a lion, with the exception of Psalm 22. That some argue, or there might be an error in the manuscript, and this translated, they pierced my hand and my feet. You guys follow me so far? Okay? Doesn't look good, does it, right? Argument number four. Um, if we even look internally inside the psalm, we see that like a lion actually kind of makes sense, right? Jesus talks, or David talked about lions a couple of times in the psalm. Before that, before, before uh, verse 16, Jesus said, or the psalmist said, save me from the lion that is turning into me, right? And right after that he said, uh, you know, the Lord saved me from the lions and from the bulls and from the dogs. So it is not so strange because we see that word commonly used in the psalm describing how people were persecuting David it's okay it makes sense to use like a lion they tear my hand and my feet or like a lion my hand and my feet it fits in the context of the psalm you guys follow me so far all right and now fifth argument why like a lion can make more sense is this we don't see that verse never quoted directly in the New Testament Amen? We don't even see an allusion to it in the New Testament. Like, we don't see any of Matthew or, or Luke or Mark or John or any of the evangelists, the four evangelists, ever say, and they nail Jesus to the cross as it is written, they pierced my hand and my feet. Because it's not in the New Testament. Amen? We see that when Jesus was pierced with the spear in his side, that John had no problem quoting that and say, as it is written, they will look upon him whom they pierced. That's from Zechariah, and John quoted that directly, had no problem with it. But when they nailed Jesus to the cross, we don't see anybody even alluding to the Old Testament scripture that says that the Messiah will be nailed or pierced on the cross. Amen? So this is the argument why like a lion makes better sense. This is the argument that if you try to share the gospel with a Jewish person who knows what they're talking about, they're going to tell you this stuff. And guess what? This actually has some weight to it. It's actually pretty good, logical. If I am a Jew, I can see why they believe that. Amen? Now, before we look into... You follow me so far? Okay. Before we look into the argument for... They pierce my hand and my feet, my feet. Let's just pause for a second. And I want to point some holes in the arguments why like a lion is a good translation. You guys follow me so far? Okay? So we're going to argue, uh, we're going to point to some holes in their arguments that this is the good translation. Before we move on to like, uh, before we move on to they pierce my hand and my feet. Alright, you guys, uh, no question, which means you either follow me 100%, you understand everything, or you're not understanding anything. So, <laughs> we'll just go with, let's point some holes in their arguments first. Number one, the, the, the hardest, one of the hardest arguments they have is when they say that this word is gibberish. And it is kind of true that 
Even if you go and look back to the word like they pierced with the long last letter, that's kind of really doesn't exist in the Hebrew language, which kind of gives their argument a validity. But here is the tricky part about that. Sometimes in the ancient Hebrew, they used to insert that letter, the second letter that looks like an N, which is A in English, Aleph in, in Hebrew. They used to insert it even when they write so they can make the word flow better when it comes to vocalization and pronunciation. Amen? So, yes, it might not exist, it, it might not exist as a word in the language, but in the style of writing, it can have some root. Why would people add that letter? Aleph, which is A, as the second letter, just to facilitate the vocalization, and some of the manuscript will just put that down. Amen? As far as the last letter, as you can see, they're very similar to each other. All what it takes is just the pen to go just a little bit tiny longer. So from a Christian perspective, or from those who defend, they pierced my hand and my feet. They can say, well, the Aleph is explained, the A is explained, because it's just a vocalization way, and they write, used to write this way, and the last letter is just happened to be uh, a mistake from a scribe, and you can see that. You guys follow me so far? Now, the second argument or the second hole in this argument that um, uh, like a line is, is a good translation yes every single time in the Masoretic text that word was mentioned was translated like a line with the exception of Psalm 22 because in every other time it was mentioned it would make text make sense in the text right the problem with like a line is this like a line my hand on my feet that doesn't make any sense when you just read it for face value for what it says in Hebrew amen you have to insert words in it you have to say they they braying on me they're tearing into me like a lion at my, at my hand and my feet do you see that you have to put words in it so yes correct it has been translated like a lion every other time but there might be some merits why it cannot be translated like a lion this time and Micah you need to go out it can be translated as like a lion uh, not be translated as like a lion and rather be translated as they pierced my hand and my feet okay all right, you guys? All right. Let's go move forward and see why some people argue that they pierced my hand and my feet is a better translation. Amen? All right. So they pierced my hand and my feet. There are some arguments for why they pierced my hand and my feet is a better translation. Number one, it is supported by the Septuagint. And what is the Septuagint? We talked about this multiple times before. This is the Greek translation of the Old Testament before the New Testament. So this is what the Jews thought about the Old Testament meaning of the verses even before Christ was born. And in that Septuagint, it has the word pierced. They pierced my hand and my feet. Amen? Which tells us that some Jews, even before Christ, even before Christianity came, they had that reading to be true, that they pierced my hand and my feet is to be the right understanding of that verse. You know what I told you before about the Septuagint, it's a very good translation to know a lot of stuff, but it is not the most accurate. We talked about this as well, right? If you remember in Psalm 8, when we talked about this a few weeks ago, uh, when it, Psalm 8 says that God has made man lower than God, the Septuagint translated as lower than the angels. So the Septuagint is good, it gives us an idea, but it is not always 100% that the most, like for me, I'll take the Masoretic text over the Septuagint in a given day. You guys follow me? Alright? Number two, and this is very good now. If you have not heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls, so uh, back in 1940-some, 1950-some, in Jordan, they found almost the whole Old Testament intact in some caves in a place um, called Qumran. And they found all the, all the manuscripts. And um, this is, was amazing discovery and a, an amazing testimony to the authenticity of the scripture. Because some of these manuscripts were dated maybe a hundred years before Christ to about a hundred years after Christ. So within, within the, uh, the starting of Christianity and all the manuscripts they found, they found almost minimal um, 
minimal uh, differences between the Hebrew manuscript that we have now and the Hebrew manuscript that the very early Christian or even before Christ had. So that was an amazing discovery. Amen? And even though they did not find Psalm 22 in any of these caves, yet just a little bit later in a different location, they found fragments of the Psalm there. And the place was called Nihal Hefer. And they found the script there. And that script actually does say, they pierced my hand and my feet. Amen? So that was uh, something to authenticate the meaning of they pierced my hand and my feet apart from the Septuagint which says they pierced my hand and my feet, right? Now, think about this. If you remember what I told you about the Masoretic text, that it was started being collected on the 6th century and it was finished on the 10th century, right? That manuscript that they found in that cave was actually dated almost 20 years after Christianity. So that is really early. Almost a thousand years before the Masoretic text was collected, right? So we have here some extra outside the Septuagint manuscript that is dated even a thousand years before the Masoretic text was collected that carries the meaning, they pierced my hand and my feet. And that's very good, right? And number three, why they pierced my hand and my feet makes more sense is because the meaning really, like a lie in my hand and my feet doesn't make any sense, does it? Nobody understands it. It's not straight English, amen? Or any language. You have to put words in it to understand it. So between these three arguments, they say, that's why they pierce my hand and my feet is the better reading. You guys follow me? All right, now let's dig some holes into that and just find out why the support for they pierce my hand and my feet can be problematic as well. Number one, in terms of the Septuagint, this guy, our rabbi, called Rabbi Singer, he's, uh, he's like, I read his article about why he doesn't believe that Psalm 22, that particular verse, talks about Christ. I honestly didn't like his tone. He was just uh, very um, condescending and assuming that Christians go out of their way to manipulate the text. But pretty much he's saying, well, the claim that the Septuagint say they pierced my hand and my feet is, doesn't, make any, doesn't make any much of a difference because the Septuagint, according to what he says, was actually um, started before Christ, but it was only for the, for the Torah, the first five books of Moses. It was not meant for the Psalms or for the prophets. And the Psalms and the prophet and the rest of the Old Testament was actually even translated way after Christianity. Therefore, might have Christians might have manipulated that Septuagint text so they can put, they pierce my hand and my feet. That's what he says. It's just factually not correct. That's the bottom line. The Septuagint, it's true that the Septuagint, when they started about 250, 260 before Christ, the only intention, the initial thought is to translate the, only the books of Moses, the Torah. But the fact of the matter is, within a hundred years, Within a hundred years from the from they started the Torah, the whole Old Testament was actually translated translated into Greek. It might have not been done by the exact 70, 70 people who started translating the Torah, but the bottom line is this: uh, even if you go Google it yourself about the Septuagint, go. I found scholarly articles, common articles, whatever. Nobody dispute the fact that the Septuagint, with all finished translating before Christianity, amen. I mean, it's so evident because the, 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 the authors of the New Testament quoted the Septuagint all over the place, right? Remember, we just talked about Psalm 8 a few weeks ago and how the author of Hebrews quoted the Septuagint, Psalm 8. And that was the Bible that is known to him at that time, right after Christ. Amen? So it's not true that the Septuagint was done hundreds of years after Christianity. This claim that he's making is not valid. Now, in terms of that um, manuscript that they found in that cave, um, he's saying, well, here's a couple of things, his argument. Number one, that manuscript is 20 years after Christianity, so there's a chance here that Christians wrote that down themselves and it's not really authentically Jewish. Here's my answer to that. You guys follow me so far? We just have to assume when it comes to um, manuscripts that people are not intentionally trying to screw up the script. 
We can assume there might be mistakes, we, we grant them that. But if we're going to assume that people try to manipulate the, the script themselves, I can argue against him and say, well, maybe the Jewish people, when they sat down to write the Masoretic text, intentionally tried to manipulate it so they can argue against Christianity, and they said, like a line, right? So if we're going to just go on assumptions, this is just not going to end. So we're not going to worry about that. You guys follow me? Now, here's my his good second argument. It's saying that this manuscript, this fragment that they found that was dated almost the times of Christ, it is so messed up that the, actually the rest of the verse says, even, he says, even if we assume that the manuscript says they pierced, right after that it says they pierced her hand and her feet. So he's saying, see, this is already messed up. It has nothing to do with the original. The scribe who wrote this, we know that he makes so many mistakes. Therefore, it cannot be trusted. You guys follow? Well, my answer to that is, you cannot, guilt, is not by, by, guilt by association is not a proof of guilt for me, right? The fact that the next word was wrong, it doesn't mean that this word was wrong, right? Guilt by association is not really a proof of guilt. The fact that there's some, so many other, maybe other errors in that script doesn't mean that this word in itself is wrong or is mistaken. You guys follow me so far? Okay, you know, I don't even know if you follow me or not. Okay, all right. <laughs> so, why I'm telling you all of this? Well, first of all, if you ever, we're supposed to, to be able to defend our faith. I need to know this for myself, so might as well you guys need to know it too. So let's come to the conclusion. Amen? Amen. As you can tell, if you haven't remembered anything about what we were talking about, there is strong evidence for both readings, right? If you're going to go with the text and the manuscripts, there's way behind both readings. Maybe 55% goes toward like a lion and 45% goes toward they pierce my hand and my feet just from the overall weight of the manuscripts. But let's think about what, let's assume, let's assume that like a lion is the right reading of that Old Testament verse. Amen? So let's say that the Hebrew actually say, like a lion, my hand and my feet. You guys follow me? Even if that's the case, it doesn't take away anything from what actually happened to Jesus on the cross. When it comes to me the meaning of what David intended, it really will not take anything away. Why? You guys want to know why? Yeah. Alright, why? Barb want to know why. Why, will not, why it wouldn't take anything out of the meaning? Let's think about it. So the actual reading is, like a lion, my hand and my feet. Obviously, this, this phrase needs some wording in it to, to try to understand the meaning. So it should be something like this. Like a lion, they're tearing into my hand and my feet. That would be the most forward, easiest understanding of what David might have intended, right? Like a lion, they're tearing my hand and my feet. Now, obviously, that's a metaphor, right? Because there was no literal lying tearing into the body of David at that time or even at the time of Christ. So the whole thing is a metaphor. We agree on that. Amen? But the question is, it's a metaphor of what? What is that metaphor trying to pointing us to? Well, obviously, listen to this, this is very important. Obviously, David is not just using that phrase as a metaphor of the general suffering that he has endured by those who surround him, or if that's a messianic prophecy, it's definitely not a metaphor of the general suffering that the Messiah will endure. Why? You guys follow me? Because if he, David, intended that to be a description, a metaphor of the general suffering that he's going to endure, he should have said, like a lion, they're tearing into me, not my hand and my feet. You guys follow me? You guys follow me? Not really. Okay. Again, if that metaphor was intended to describe the general suffering of David or of Christ eventually later, then David should have said, like a lion, they're tearing into me. But David didn't say they're tearing into me. He said they're tearing where? Into my hand and my feet. So obviously David here is trying to draw our attention to a special kind of tearing that took place at the hands and the feet of the Messiah. Amen? He just spoke about that metaphorically in terms of as the lion tear into its prey, so they also were tearing into my hand and my feet. You guys follow the thought process here? 
So even if like a lion is the true reading, that doesn't take away anything from the meaning because David is trying to draw our attention to a very unique, uh, uncommon, and generalized kind of tearing that took place at his hands and his feet or the hands and the feet of the Messiah eventually. Amen? And nobody knew what David was talking about, right? We know David died and his hands and his feet were just so intact together, right? Nobody understood what David was referring to here till Jesus came and they actually pierced his hand and his feet on the cross. Amen? You guys follow me so far? So even if it says, like a lion, my hand and my feet, it is still telling us that there will be a special kind of tearing that happens to the Messiah when he comes to die. And this kind of tearing not going to be all over his body. It's only going to be limited to his hands and his feet. You guys follow me? So still the prophecy is valid. The meaning is valid. Whatever the original text is, it doesn't change much in terms of you know what happened to Jesus on the cross obviously they, they pierced my hand will be a bit stronger but at the end of the day the meaning has not changed much you guys follow me you guys follow me okay let's read again about um, what this guy Dr. Davis say about the nailing of what happened to Jesus on the cross here is what I'm gonna again read it verbatim Jesus carried his cross. Now he went outside to, to Mount Calvary. And then it says, Jesus is quickly thrown backward with his shoulders against the wood. The Roman soldiers feel for the depression for the depression at the front of his wrist. So right here, they look for, there is like a soft spot right here at, the, at his wrist. They feel for that depression. He drives a heavy square Rod iron nailed through the rest and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeat the action, being careful not to pull his arm too uh, tightly. So they give him some wiggle room so he can move. They don't pull it so hard. They, they give him a little bit. But, but to allow some flexation and movement. And then they go to the feet. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot and with both feet extended those toes down and nail is driven through the arc of each leaving the knees moderately flexed a little bit of bending in it the victim is now crucified now look at this look at this this is crazy as he slowly sags now remember this Jesus hang on the cross and he's fixed to that cross with two nails one in each hand and one nail on his feet and he's trying to breathe right so it's very difficult for him to breathe but when he trying to inhale then he's trying to push himself upward and he put all the weight of his body on that nail on his feet right and then when he's trying to exhale now his, his body's going down he's relaxing and letting the air out and when he's doing that he's putting all the weight of his body on the two nails in his in his hands right and then it says this the victim is now crucified as he slowly sags down with more weight on the sags down with more weight on the nails of the wrist excruciating fiery pain shoots along his fingers and up the arm to explode in the brain the nails in the wrist are putting pressure on the on the median nerves as he pushes himself upward to avoid that stretching torment, he places his full weight of the, uh, on the nail through his feet. Again, the exact same searing, agony, excruciating pain running through the nerves of Christ that shoots throughout his pain. Every single breath that Jesus took on the cross was, was pain for him because he was fixed to that wood by nails in his hands and his feet. And every time he moves up, every time he moves down, guess what? There is more tearing in his nerves, there is more tearing in his flesh, there is more tearing in his bones. Amen? Honestly, like a lion tearing my hand and my feet might be even a more scientifically accurate description of what was happening to the hand of, and feet of Jesus on the cross because the tearing was constant. It was not just the nails. It's all the time from the time he was nailed to that wood till he died. The nails were just staring into his muscle and his nerves and his bone and the, the pain was just unexplainable. Amen? Amen. They pierced my hand and my feet. 
Now let's look finally here at his clothes, and this is what the psalmist said in verse 18, that they divide my clothes and they cast lots on my garment. We see the exact fulfillment of that in Christ in, in John 19, 23. When the soldiers crucified Christ, crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each one of them. Amen? How many soldiers crucified Christ? Okay, good. One is awake. One person is awake. That's good. <laughs> four crucified Jesus. They divided his, his clothes and they divided into four shirts. With the um, undergarments remaining, the garment was seamless, woven into one piece, up from, from top to bottom. They said, let us not tear it. But they said to one another, let us decide by lot who will get it. This happened as the scripture might be fulfilled that says, They divided my clothes among them and they cast lots on my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. What are the odds and the chances of this? That it's, it's absolutely impossible that, that this psalm could have been fulfilled in anyone else except Christ. Amen? From, from the breaking of his heart, from his joy, his bones being out of joint, from the nailing and the tearing of his hands and feet, to, to dividing some of his clothes and casting lot on his garments. I mean, the odds of this happening is impossible. It's only one person that can fulfill this psalm. Amen? And it is not David. It is Jesus. Amen? Nobody cast lot on any of David's garments, right? We never hear about that. There's only one person that we know of that, was, that divided some of his clothes and cast lots on his garment and that was the divine son of the living God. Amen? Again, Jesus was stripped naked on the cross and his clothes was given to those who crucified him. And why would he do that? So he can clothe you and me with the very clothes of righteousness before a holy and a righteous God. Amen? Remember what happened when Adam and Eve fell in sin and they ran away from God and God said, Adam, Adam, where are you? And Adam cried and said, God, I'm sorry, I am naked and I'm running away from you right when sin came it brought that it brought that nakedness yet Jesus as our substitute on the cross who bore that very nakedness on him on the cross so he can clothe you and me with the robes of righteousness Isaiah 61 10 I will rejoice greatly in the Lord my soul will exalt will ex exalt in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation amen we cast lots on Jesus' garments so you and I can have the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with the rope of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a, a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Amen? Amen? Christ the suffering one. Amen? I'm just going to close. I'm, I know I took so long. But let's just recap all the pains that Jesus has gone through. I'm just going to go through these seven points again. In terms of overall conditions, he was, um, he was less than a human being. He was a worm and not a man. He was absolutely not resisting. He was poured out like water. That's his overall condition. His surrounding, he was mocked and despised by how many? All those who surrounded him. Those who surrounded him, his friends left him away, and all what is left around him was like bulls, lions, and dogs. His bones literally went out of joint with all the pain associated with that. You can see every single bone in his body. They can count all his bones. His heart was melted like wax because of the wrath of God. His mouth, the tongue of his mouth stuck to the roof of his, of his mouth because he was just so thirsty and his mouth was so dry. His hands and his feet was torn like a lion tearing into its prey. His clothes was just given away to others so he can clothe us with the garment of righteousness. Amen? Let's come before the Lord and pray.